chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. This week, we're discussing something very special to my heart, something I love and hate, something anyone who knows me has heard me talk about with great passion, the great state of New Jersey. Um, For a second, I thought you were going to say the shins. And I was like, oh, Liza, I didn't know you felt so strongly about the shins. I mean, don't get me wrong. The soundtrack in this movie also has a near and dear place to my heart. I was like instantly in like the ninth grade again, listening to a mixtape a friend made me. Yes. And uh, to to uh, talk to us about this great film, we brought someone else who can help us represent for the tri-state area. And that's Brooklyn native Henry Pines. What's Woo-hoo! up, Henry? Hi, guys. So excited to be talking about the strange place across the river. Yeah. When, uh, when we asked Henry if you wanted to talk about this movie with us he said he hadn't seen it and i was like oh i'm very excited (laughs) to make you watch this movie there's a segment of brooklyn and parts of staten island that are the same as new jersey Mm -hmm. and this made me think of those places new jersey is definitely just sort of a um a placeholder for i think what a lot of places experience a sort of melancholic suburban (laughs) existence (laughs) A garden state of mind, one might say. Womp womp. Uh-oh. I know, it's really the worst thing I've ever said on the show. <laughs> well, Janelle, before we get further into that, do you want to tell us what we're talking about? Yeah, I do. All right. So, uh, Garden State. This was a Patreon uh, selection, so thanks, patrons. Thanks, guys. Gar- <laughs> garden State 2004. Here's your Google summary. After many years away, television bit part actor Andrew Largeman, played by Zach Braff, returns to his small hometown in New Jersey to attend his mother's funeral. There he is, confronted by various aspects of the life he left behind, including his overbearing father, played by Ian Holm. Uh, Largeman also meets compulsive liar and amateur... amateur musician? Hmm? What? What? Google, I don't think that's right. Um, Amateur (laughs) musician Sam, played by Natalie Portman with whom he feels an immediate connection. Together with several other figures from his past, Largeman heals old wounds and forges new friendships. All right. Apart from that obvious factual (laughs) error from Google, um, (laughs) y'all, that's what Google says this movie's about. Uh, But what is this movie really about? You know, I feel like this movie is about trying to escape from depression. Whether or not any of the characters successfully do that I think is something we should discuss mm-hmm. <laughs> over the next 45 minutes. But it really does seem to be about sort of trying to break free from a a depressive state of mind. I would I would agree with that. It's about it's trying to be about a lot of things and about like different aspects of depression and mental health all at once in a way that is Sometimes successful. Yeah, I think it's difficult to talk about this movie after we just spoke about Elizabethtown, which has one of the worst screenplays I've ever experienced. Uh, And then (laughs) you sort of watch Garden State, which having come out a year before Elizabethtown, you have to see a lot of influences there. Um, They're very similar plots, but this screenplay is much better executed, I'd say. It's much better written. Whether that makes it like the um, iconic classic that it has become is something we can debate. But 
yeah, I, I think that it brings up some of the same uh, questions that we have with Elizabethtown, which is why do these themes of uh, depression and sort of like melancholia and even this suburban uh, mundane, mundanity, mundanity, the suburban mundane, I'll come up with a better phrase. Anyway, why are those themes met with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl? Like, what does she, how does she serve those themes and why? Well, you know, it's interesting because as I was watching this this time around, um, I was noticing, you know, one of the things that I think makes this a better screenplay than Elizabethtown. And that's not to say I even necessarily think it's a good screenplay, but it's certainly better. Oh, yeah, that's not a high bar. Let's all be great. <laughs> right. but, but one of the things that makes it better is that it you can really see the influences of um, some previous uh, sort of um, movie genres and um, classic movie types. You know, there's elements of the sort of French new wave melancholia um there's elements of i mean a, a clear influence of woody allen you know you get a lot of you know things where you can you can see that um annie hall or manhattan you know kind of played an influence on this you get those sort of french new wave jump cuts uh they're not quite as um uh artistically stark jump cuts but they're you know he's at the funeral and then the scene doesn't really end and then they're at the wake afterwards and then the scene doesn't really end and then he's mm -hmm. standing in this ridiculous shirt that his aunt or whoever she is has made him and that's it that's the whole scene there's nothing that happens there it's just a shot and then he's talking to his dad you know you get those sort of things which are i think more artistically pointed um mm -hmm. and it helps to create the tone much more clearly uh than in elizabeth town which we talked about last week but all of those things, those um, those movie influences that I'm talking about, also tend to feature a particular kind of woman. You know, you get your your Bridget Bardot's coming out of the French New Wave. You get you know Annie Hall as in some arguments a version of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, although I think she is much more well rounded than most. Um, so I don't know what it is that that brings these particular female tropes out when men are trying to discover what's going on in their mind, but it does seem to happen over and over again. I feel like part of this stems from the generational father-son conflict that the movie touches on, but doesn't mm -hmm. explore, is that the men in Andrew's life have failed to talk to him about feelings, despite being like, let's talk! <laughs> right. <laughs> and so he's turning to this almost the manic pixie dreamer girl is almost a maternal like a mm. down a de-aged maternal mm. replacement where she's has all these ideas she knows everything she's right she's funny and she's almost replacing the role mm -hmm. of mother for him in a way that like when you're a little boy, you're like, your mom is your favorite person and she does all this stuff for you and you don't know anything about her, but she's like attending to all your needs. Well, you know, you even get later in the movie, you get the the background about um, the main character's relationship with his mother and that, you know, she was quite depressed when he was younger and he was frustrated as a small child because he couldn't do anything to make her happy. And at the end, you get this scene um, with him and Natalie Portman where she's saying, I've been so much better this week since you were here. I haven't felt as much of a need to lie compulsively. I'm happier when you're here. 
Um, and so he's in some ways fulfilling that childhood dream of being able to help the woman who is then filling all of these needs for him as well. Um, although you don't really see much of Natalie Portman's character's world beyond, you know, what's relevant to Zach Braff's story. But clearly just hearing that, that he's been able to help her has like fixed years of trauma in his mind. <laughs> well, and it's notable too. I didn't realize this until your comments, Henry, that we don't see Sam's dad, but we also, do we get an explanation for where he is? Is he dead? Is he just I gone? I don't think so. Nothing. And that was a running question when Zach Braff is talking about how he has like the most fucked up family. Mm. And we don't get any information on why she seemingly lives with her single mother and what her family life has been like. Mm -hmm. And so there's no, I don't know why he keeps comparing their families. Yeah. yeah, like his family has been beset by tragedy several times over. And and it is, you're right, it is sort of weird to compare that to her family, which is essentially like built, like a house built by Quirk. It's filled <laughs> with gerbils and tchotchkes from the 70s and an adopted brother from Africa who's studying criminology at Rutgers. And there are many Dobermans and she has a little mm -hmm. blankie that she calls Tickle. Yeah, it, it does seem sort of like weirdly insulting to what seems to be like a, a somewhat functioning family unit that she has there, mm -hmm. uh, minus her dad, uh, if there ever was one. Everyone in this seems to have a strange family life, and that's not necessarily inaccurate. I mean, everyone's, you know, everyone's families are weird and everyone's family has their own stuff going on, but all of his friends either... Their family's completely absent or, you know, you've got the friend who's he's still living with his mom, even though these characters are supposed to be in like their mid to late 20s. Um, and his mom is dating a guy who appears to be someone they knew in high school, who's their age, who is a knight at medieval times and <laughs> also seems to have no personality, but is in this guy's house. You know, they all are sort of are going through these strange family dynamics that they all just kind of accept and don't really talk about and move on with repeatedly in this way where you're constantly like, wait, tell me more about this. I have questions. <laughs> there is a, I, I appreciated that about the screenplay though, that there is a sense that, that the world building that Zach Braff does as the screenwriter is to create a, a world of suburban New Jersey where everyone is a little weird. Like mm -hmm. everyone is offbeat and kooky in a way that's just exaggerating the reality of what it's like to leave a small town, you know, mm -hmm. and you come back from the city and everybody just feels like a little off kilter because they're not part of the sort of mainstream sense of what's cool and normal and acceptable that you would find in a city like LA, for example. So in the world building sense, like that all kind of works for me. I can understand what he's mm -hmm. going for there. Um, but it does, it, it is, it is contrasted and you can argue whether or not this works, the kind of like, extraordinary almost magical realism stuff that happens in this, mm -hmm. in this movie is contrasted against the really raw emotion of the mental illness discussions and the grief yeah you know your your comment about how everyone you know everyone in this world sort of comes from this kind of quirky thing but it's still very gritty it's not like it's not beautiful or fantastical in any way but it's just like a little larger than reality. I found it very interesting with the setting in New Jersey because one of the things about New Jersey, especially um, Northern Jersey, this takes place in Essex County, which is the county where I grew up. 
um, is that it has a lot of elements of what we would consider small town America. You know, it has blue collar workers and it, you know, has suburban numbness and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it, um, there's so many people and all of the towns are very close together that you get all of those elements without the like small town, everyone knows each other vibe. You know, it's, it's much easier Mm -hmm. to be somewhere and and not run into anyone, you know, or to, you know, go 10 minutes away and be in a completely different kind of town. And you get elements of that at one point when they're driving on one of their various adventures with his friend, they drive past what's clearly supposed to be like East orange or Newark or something like that. And there's like a bunch of black kids playing basketball on a kind of decrepit basketball court next to a parking lot and then a few minutes later they're driving up to his friends like McMansion and there's a few moments like that that are clearly supposed to show sort of the range of what's there but everyone's experiencing this kind of melancholy um and I I I think he's trying to make a point there but they don't mention it they just sort of it exists within the story um and Mm -hmm. that's I find that to be an interesting contrast with his own sort of walking through life numb element because there's a lot more going on behind them than they really address so we're talking about the numbness of his suburban life but the most starkingly startlingly numb portions of the movie i think are the opening stuff when he's in la Mm -hmm. and totally zonked out on his uh I guess is assume his drug cocktail or he's coming off of his medications mm-hmm. and he literally drives off with a gas station pump in his car still mm-hmm. and just sort of throws it away and doesn't comment on it. Probably caused thousands of dollars of property damage. And then he had this weird forced yellow face at a Vietnamese restaurant bit where he barely engages in conversation Mm -hmm. with someone who I think is yeah Jill Flint at that restaurant her character is literally named obnoxious girl (laughs) Uh, of course obnoxious girl well and and you see him in what's clearly supposed to be his apartment and it's just a big white room there's Mm -hmm. nothing on the walls there's no furniture outside of his bed you know, it's clearly supposed to look very sort of institutional. Well, and this gets at, like, what we were talking about with Elizabethtown and part of what gave birth to this sort of quirky, sad boy meets Manic Pixie Dream Girl uh, genre is that, you know, this period is what I'm starting to call the great millennial crisis of masculinity. Uh, and, and part of that, that this movie is like zeroing in on is that, you know, at this time, like what the film adaptation of Prozac Nation comes out in 2001. Mm-hmm. So we're really coming into a into a public moment in American culture where there's a lot of concern about over-medication and about depression, especially post 9-11. Like it's, we're not necessarily making those connections, but there's a sense of sort of like collective PTSD and national yeah. trauma that gets wrapped up in what was already sort of like crisis of um, over-medication. So it is really interesting. You're right, uh, Henry, that like LA is the place where he's still sort of, uh, in that world, in that drug cocktail, and he is coming out of it when he goes back home, when he goes back to more of the like sort of suburban retreat. I also think that it's interesting the discussions of his medication and, and his mental health journey in this movie because clearly, you know, he's struggled with a lot of things, but over the course of the story, it's made clear that 
perhaps that he's been over medicated but i also think it's clear that he's been mismedicated you know he's his mm. father has sort of diagnosed him in order to make life easier okay i'll just give you all of these you know this crazy drug cocktail and it will calm you down and calm me down and you know all this kind of stuff and i don't think it's implied that he shouldn't be on some form of depression medication but they keep saying like the amount of lithium he's on is so insane and that he's also had all these other um medications over the years and all this kind of thing and you know and you see everyone sort of self-medicating in their own way whether that's you know his friends who are constantly doing drugs or his buddy who's you know bought this huge house because he has the money but then just lays around it all day and doesn't know what to do and maybe the conversation is trying to sort of move its way from just everyone's on you know drugs for anxiety and depression to maybe we need to actually find the correct solution to these problems rather than just throwing anything at it well he has had a conversation with the neurologist at one point uh who says you know it seems to me that uh you probably do need the medication but if you're not getting therapy if you're not talking about your problems then those those problems are just gonna like you know rear their ugly heads through the medication no matter what you do and again that feels sort of like a hint 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 towards this crisis of masculinity of like yes we have to acknowledge that we are people who have emotions and we can't let Mm -hmm. toxic masculinity like keep us from engaging with the reality of our like emotional worlds um which is in not not explicitly but in some way implied by what his father did right his father was keeping him safe from his emotions his whole life while while violating all medical ethics and (laughs) yes yeah yeah exactly yeah in an incredibly (laughs) unethical way yeah you should psychiatrist and even the neurologist he should know better don't be medicating child to for 15 16 years 17 years right. or something well and then on top of that then you throw natalie portman's character into the mix who is someone who i mean still compared to you know like uh, the character in elizabeth town natalie portman's character is is quite more on the melancholy side you know she's not quite as like peppy and giggly as as some of the examples of a manic pixie dream girl are but compared to everyone else she's quite bright and colorful and cheery and the things that are bad in her life don't seem to have negatively affected her mental state at all you know she talks about the fact that she's Mm -hmm. got a pretty serious neurological um medical condition and that at work she has to wear a helmet or they won't cover her and you know all this kind of stuff and she's like i just laugh it off it's no big deal you gotta laugh it off it's not you know otherwise you're just gonna be depressed so be like me and that's such an interesting element to toss into this where everyone else either won't talk about their feelings or is just so negatively affected by everything. And she's like, no, it's all good. All of my animals die. La-di-da. But like she does like she has the she has the unique ability to explore a range of emotions that <laughs> even the one of two other female characters who really talk, the aunt is just sort of meandering on about redecorating. Mm-hmm. And Natalie Portman's mother is like this warm best mom, and like gives him Andrew a mom hug, and mm. he noticeably feels a sense of relief there because I, you get the sense that he grew up in a family where there was not physical affection given. Mm. That contrast is interesting, and then to bring it back to toxic masculinity. His father, it's just the Gen X millennial, at least I can talk, acknowledge that I have my emotions rather than my boomer or older father 
who is a stone wall. Mm-hmm. And that's the, I feel like that's the comparison point that Braff is using and that excite and that I think is one of the reasons why he doesn't feel the character or maybe the movie doesn't feel bad about not giving the women in the movie enough space to breathe because his comparison is his father who was so tied up and so stilted that at least he's talking about his feelings. And so men are sort of caught in, this probably goes back to your point earlier, Janelle, about the taught crisis of masculinity men are caught between the pull of learning to feel their emotions and then their standard that their father sets, so they only need to go so far. Mm. And they don't need, and so they can let a woman do the emotional work for them. Yeah, and I think that's really encapsulated in the ending of this movie, which, you know, it's really interesting because in some ways, like, I wasn't as offended by this Manic Pixie Dream Girl plot as others because mm-hmm. I thought, well... Well, and we'll also talk about the point Henry brought up before we started recording about how Natalie Portman carries this whole movie on her back, which we will discuss in detail. Um, (laughs) Yeah, women doing the work in the movie and in the real world. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But in the ending of the movie, at first, you know, Largeman says, like, this this has changed my life. This is everything. Um, but I'm going to go away now. I got to figure my shit out. And then, like, you know, maybe I'll come back to you. And, of course, like, Sam is devastated. You know, and he eventually, you know, decides to come back and embrace his like sort of like emotional, you know, impulses and stay with her and fall in love with her. But he he still has that uh, he still has that initial instinct to to push it away, to say, like, I, I, I don't want to engage with the emotional complexity of being in a relationship. I want to, like, move away from this. Although there is a part of me that was thinking, like. Maybe that's healthier, though. They have only known each other for four days, and they well, say that. <laughs> yeah, the the ending of the movie I find really sort of incongruous with the rest of the movie, and I feel like I'm probably not alone in that. And I agree, I'm not as offended by Natalie Portman's character as a Manic Pixie Dream Girl until right at the end when I was just like, what the hell is happening? This does not seem like what either of you have been like the whole movie, because it is this sort of strange long weekend that they share together. And if you think about it from... Natalie Portman's character, right? If you think about it from, um, what is her character's name even? Sam. Sam. If you think about it from Sam's point of view, she's at the doctor's office for a routine checkup or whatever it is and meets a guy who seems kind of interesting, but a little sort of, you know, quiet and not super interested in her, but willing to chat, whatever. The two of them then start hanging out for the weekend She finds out he's home for a couple days because his mom just died. He hasn't been back in the state in years. They run into a bunch of his burnout high school friends and go on a series of very concerning weird adventures with them. Right? Like, this is is like red flag after red flag. Um, (laughs) Then they presumably have sex. And then he goes to the airport to leave. Like, that is her experience of this, is that this guy she met at the doctor's office takes her to meet all of his friends who are like, let's go to the sketchy hotel. Let's go stand on the edge of an abyss and talk to my weird friend who sells gold out of his boat. Like, and then she's like, I'm in love with him. I can't believe he's leaving. And up until then, I didn't have a problem with her going on these adventures with him. Like sometimes you do run into people and you have weird chemistry or you like 
end up with a weird group of friends for a few days and you just kind of go along with whatever they're doing. Like that didn't seem strange to me. I mean, it's strange, but it didn't seem implausible to me. And then at the end when she Mm -hmm. was like, but I'm in love with you. And he's like, yes, I want this. Our real lives, our real lives. You just did nothing for four days. Neither one of you went to work. (laughs) Neither one of you dealt with your real lives. Neither one of you, like, this isn't a relationship. This is a weird story to tell someone. Like his real life. He is a semi-successful young actor in Los Angeles. I know, like, what are you doing? Starts with him, like, he has to be a waiter or whatever. But he's been in seemingly a lead character in a TV movie. Enough that he's recognizable Mm -hmm. in a waiting room. And he considers himself a burnout failure at the age of 26, which is just... That's not how Los Angeles works. (laughs) No one in LA is like, ooh, I was in a made-for-TV movie before I turned 30. Definitely a failure. No. (laughs) Well, that's so... It's so interesting. It's like the pull of traditional masculinity gets him anyway, right? Like, in the Mm -hmm. end, he decides to to say goodbye to his burgeoning career in Los Angeles to return to his ancestral home... Settle down with a nice girl he met from the neighborhood and call it a day. Right. He still hasn't totally fixed his relationship with his father. His friends are still weird as fuck. This young woman who clearly has some pretty severe medical issues lives at home and works at a law office but doesn't go there for four straight days. So unclear if she took the time off to hang out with him, if she only works there a few days a week, you know, whatever. I I think Janelle was right in that. Uh, his mother conveniently died during a long weekend. Yes. <laughs> it just it just happened to be Labor Day weekend. Um, but, like, he knows very little about her extended life. Does she have other friends in the area? Is she working at a law office because she's trying to become a lawyer? Is she taking law classes at Rutgers? Is she just, like, the, you know, receptionist there and she hates her life and, you know, isn't going anywhere? Is she really happy with, you know, having just this one job that, like, isn't leading anywhere because she kind of likes just sort of doping around and you know and messing with people who she meets at the doctor's office like we know nothing about where she's going where she's come from what she wants and he's like yeah you know i should rearrange my entire life to start this relationship with her because this is real what i feel like that gets to like one of the hearts of the manic pixie dream girl problem in this movie is that we know nothing about we know some things about Mm -hmm. her but none of those like larger facts of her wants or needs beyond him Right. And that's where, like, it falls into the trope. Yeah, I think it's like, uh, and I I give you all the credit for this, Henry, because it's so true. Like, this screenplay with another actor would have been pretty painful because what we learn about Samantha really is just a series of quirks. Um, Like, even her her illness is, like, part of her quirkiness, uh, which Mm -hmm. is... I, I know my friend Dr. Les Gray listens to this podcast sometimes and, and they are an expert on disability, so I would really love their thoughts about what that's all about. Um, yeah, but- I, I hate it as, as <laughs> someone who does not myself have to struggle with much disability but has many close friends and family who do, wa- watching her be like, it's quirky that I have to wear a helmet at work. I was like, that, that's not quirky. That's either just like an element of who you are or it's a concerning medical condition that you're dealing with and he should maybe ask more questions about in order to show interest in you, right? And she's just like, it's funny because <laughs> they make me wear it. Like, they make you wear it. You almost died because you fell and hit your head. Like, it, why is this a quirk? Why is this supposed to be either fun or just like unique? Like, I have a friend who had epilepsy. She 
hated having to wear that helmet. Mm -hmm. And like we made fun, like we found out about her having to wear that helmet in high school and because we were trash high school students made fun of her for it. Like that's the type of stuff that happens. Right, which is probably why she hated wearing causes it. Causes serious wounds in emotional trauma that is, I feel like, only explored by what Natalie Portman is doing with her face. I know. It's so remarkable how that that otherwise, like, I'm sure on paper this is really hard to read, but that first scene where they come to her house for the first time, and she basically takes him on a mm-hmm. tour of the home, just listing out a series of, like, really quirky things that are occurring. Like, <laughs> like I said, they have the gerbils, they have the dogs, they have her adopted brother, semi-adopted brother from... Africa, which is a whole other thing that I feel like if you made this movie today, you would not include that plot at all because, oh my God, what? Um, yeah. <laughs> they go into her room and she does that like, whenever I feel unoriginal, I stand in a spot and I make a gesture that no one's ever made before. Oh like any other actor trying to do that would have, I mean, it would have been, the secondhand embarrassment would have been hideous, but instead you have Harvard graduate Academy Award winner Natalie Portman doing it, so she manages to sell it, but just barely. Just barely. That moment with the weird gestures so that I feel unique is hard to watch. Not least because it, as happens with this kind of a character, comes out of nowhere, right? Like, they're not having a discussion about feeling like everyone else or needing to be unique Mm -hmm. or about her and like not having achieved her goals or whatever. They're just sort of having a discussion about being bored. And then she's like, well, when I need to feel unique, I do this because it was time for me to say something else quirky and inspire you to do something quirky too. Again, like that's like, that's what the script is telling her. And then Natalie Portman has this series of like very quick expressions on her face where she's like, I want to change the subject. I want to get away from the things that cause me pain. Um, this is how I get away from the things that cause me pain. And you can see her do all of that and fight against all of that, which is just a credit to her because she's making this at the same time she's making the Star Wars prequels. (laughs) Which she tries and fails to save. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I've been rewatching a bunch of Star Wars stuff recently and thinking about that and all of the great actors who just cannot save those scripts. Uh, but this is a similar thing, right? Like, and again, the script's not necessarily bad, but it's not as good as it thinks it is. And there are performances in this, particularly hers, that are trying to put more into it than there is. The other moment that really I thought she does great at is that moment that's sort of you know famous because it's on the posters and in all of the it was in all the trailers where they're in the trash bags in the rain and they're screaming. You know, Zach Braff's character has a sort of breakdown moment where he just like stands up on this big piece of equipment and starts yelling because he needs to get it out. And you see her go through this whole thought process in a split second of realizing how much pain he's in, realizing that it was really helpful for him to get that out, realizing that he needs someone to tell him it was okay that he just did that. And so she climbs up on the thing, too, and gestures for his friend to climb up. And then they all scream. And there's no dialogue. Right. Like, I'm sure the script is like he screams, they scream like and that's the whole thing. And she adds so much more depth to that moment, which may also be because of Zach Braff's directing. You know, I mean, I don't think that she was completely, Mm -hmm. you know, alone in this, but certainly she pulls it off in a way most could not. Well, and one of the things that I think is the fault of the screenplay that I'm concerned about, especially because, okay, let's take it back. So early on in the film, when Largeman gets to Jersey, he goes to a house party with his male friends and it's and it's an opportunity for for Zach Braff as the screenwriter and the director to characterize this town. What they're doing at this party is they're drinking a lot, doing drugs, and the girls who are present there are quite literally girls. There's a <laughs> suggestion that they are high school mm-hmm. students, right? 
Or just out of high school. Yeah. Or just out of high school, which is rich. College Given freshman. that Zach Braff is currently dating someone who's 20 years younger than him. They're very happy. I get it. But it's still, come on. Um, yeah. But weird. Samantha is characterized in the way that she speaks quite young. I mean, mm-hmm. Natalie Portman was in college when mm-hmm. she filmed this. Zach Braff was 30. Um, so I, I am curious about also like how Natalie Portman in this film is bringing a lot of gravity and intelligence because that's just how she has an, is as an actor to dialogue that is very childlike. I mean, there's a moment where they're sitting and they're talking about, mm-hmm. um, grief in front of the fire at, uh, Largeman's friend's medieval mansion, which always makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and she, she's just sort of like looking wistfully at him and says like, you know, life is just like that sometimes. I know how to tap dance. Do you want to see me tap dance? And then she does it like a toddler. It's, it's a little unsettling. And her pattern of speech, it feels like she has chewing gum permanently lodged (laughs) in her cheek. Like a big wad of it. Mm -hmm. And she's talking really fast through it, is how I would describe her voice in this movie. And it's infantilizing. Yes. Infantilizing. Yes. That is exactly the word I was looking for. Thank you. Well, and it's so interesting because she's infantilized and womanized, right? Like, like as as mm-hmm. we said earlier, she takes on this mothering role to him. And we also get the very horrifying, she's not like other girls, you know, point in this, right? Because we meet these girls at this party earlier and they are dressed and visualized as older than Natalie Portman, right? Like they're treated in the script as if they're just mm-hmm. about 18, but they're, you know, dressed in tight-fitting clothes and they're clearly there to like you know hit on the boys and then they decide that they're gonna play spin the bottle and you know they're very they're very sexualized (laughs) and when he's like why are we gonna play spin the bottle we're adults that's weird they're like well what else are we gonna do because they're supposed to be dumb and airheaded and just there to be these sex objects and then she's introduced Mm -hmm. and she's always in like a t-shirt and cargo pants and very sort of young looking her hair's just in a ponytail you know she's she's got a kind of a schoolgirl aesthetic and then she also you know just talks about things like i want to go tap dance and i do these fun things but then also has this emotional gravitas that no one else carries and so there's a real disconnect between what we're told about her versus the role that she plays and i can understand why maybe when we were all watching this you know the first time around when we were teenagers and young teenagers at that that maybe those things don't stand out. But watching it this time around, I was like so uncomfortable seeing this woman who was portrayed as so young than having to, you know, carry the weight of this 26 year old's depression on her back. Yeah. No, there's just, cause she's, she's talking about her blankie. Her blankie. Tickle the blankie. Like someone talking about their blankie on like still like hour three of meeting someone that they're romantically interested in. <laughs> Right. Is, like, this not an adult move? That That's literally something, like, a five-year-old would do when they made a new friend. God, it's right. so true. And I didn't even think about this until now, but also there's that weird dissonance between how, like, yeah, she's very infantilized and she shares her blankie, but when they first meet, part of their meet-cute is, is that she's sharing with him some fairly advanced indie pop music <laughs> by the shins. <laughs> so she's simultaneously, like, impossibly young and vivacious, but also, like, cool and with it enough to introduce him to new like aesthetic avenues of expression mm-hmm. so yeah man i'm well, hating this more and more as i talk to you guys about it when i was watching it, i was totally <laughs> taking it by and i was into it and now i'm like fuck this is awful 
Well, and they have that that kind of thing <laughs> repeatedly. I mean, he literally has a line where he says, you're innocent, that's what I like about you, which ah! made me want to barf. I mean, I was just so mad when he said and it. she responds, but, no, I'm not. Right, but that's the thing, right, is that he's like, you're innocent, that's what I like about you. And then she comes in with her cool girl side and is like, I'm not that innocent. I've also done stuff and seen the world, right? You know, and she's like, even he's home for his mother's funeral and the funeral that's associated with her character is the funeral of her gerbil. Right. Not even like a dog, like someone who's been with her for years or whatever, a gerbil. Right. Who's, you know, I don't know, maybe has a lifespan of like two years. Right. And so. Which her mom, we meet her mom. Her mom's just like swinging around this dead gerbil, <laughs> like gesticulating a lot with it. Right. But like everything about her, we meet her mother who, you know, who still acts as the mother to her and gives her instructions and says, go clean the kitchen and go deal with the gerbil. And, you know, right. She's treated as a kid and she's constantly, you know, it's clear that she's younger than his friends. And he thinks that she's like that she's really innocent, but she's also just cool enough to like be able to keep up with his friends and isn't weirded out by going to all these strange places, you know, and it, the, the male fantasy of this young, innocent, naive woman, but who's not so naive because when you need her to, she can step in and be the maternal emotional, you know, stability for you is so icky. And so not the reality of like what a human woman is. Also, and to further the point of like not what a human woman is when she and he the place where she and he are before they decide to have sex is the bathtub that his mother died in oh i hadn't even thought about Symbolism. that ah oh. yeah, i had the same question like <laughs> what is that well, I think it gets back to what you were saying, Henry, is that they're sort of parent replacements for each other. So I'm sure someone out there has done like a deep Freudian analysis of this. But yeah, it's a lot. Maybe someone would comfort you in that situation, but decide to sleep with you in there. Yeah. Why you would decide to sleep with someone after being in said bathtub where your mother died. Also yeah, that's real like Oedipal and weird. I don't like that at all. Ugh. And it, it really does, like, it's such a direct sort of replacement, because if you think about it, one of the things he says that's very emotionally raw about his mom is that the reason why he pushed her, and indeed why she got into the accident that left her paraplegic, is that he was so mad at her for being so sad all the time. So in a way, Samantha, like, gives him a mommy replacement who's happy and vivacious all the time. Oh, yeah, she completely, like, in his mind, fulfills all of the things that he's been missing since he was a small child. In a, you know, three-day oh, period. Fixed. That's... And and then he has the... And I guess... Then he has the gall to, like, have the I forgive you or, like, we're going to work through this dad conversation, mm-hmm. which the movie doesn't earn. Right. Because it doesn't spend any time with it. It's spending all the time with him and Sam, which cause that's more interesting. And... But then the emotional climax is him discussing his mother's accident and his mother's life with his dad who they they haven't talked about it there hasn't mm-hmm. been a setup scene where they talked about their his relationship with his dad and his relationship with his mom what was that like pre and post accident i'd love to know right well and it's interesting cuz the content of that scene i didn't mind i think him having this realization that you know he's been told he was at fault his entire life and that he was a kid and he wasn't at fault but he's also not angry anymore at his dad for doing that. And he forgives him too. Cause he understands that, you know, that there was emotional, you know, trauma on both sides. I like that, that element, but you're right. It's not really earned. And, you know, and you don't get enough about 
what's led him to that. And it feels like it's in the middle of a sort of coming of age story, right? Where you're like realizing, okay, I've been looking at my, you know, my childhood wrong or differently. And now that I have a better perception on it, I'm going to, you know, have this come to Jesus moment with my father where we really talk about it and fix things. Except the rest of the film doesn't act like a coming of age story. (laughs) So... (laughs) It 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 does feel out of nowhere when compared to the rest of it, which is so static for him to then have this like moment of growth. Although I will give Zach Braff credit in a way for the fact that at least he does have the line that he tells Sam, like, I've only known you four days and you changed my life, which ugh, barf. But um <laughs> but I think there there is a lot in the film though to at least suggest that Sam isn't the whole reason that he has changed, mm-hmm. which is not something we could say for something mm-hmm. like Elizabethtown. Um Right. Or other films where the man that picks a dream girl is somehow like literally magic. Um, so I at least appreciate <laughs> that the coming of age portion of it gives Largeman some agency in his own life, I guess. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll give him one cookie for that. Yeah, it definitely, the script, like you get the the tone that led to it and the bigger ideas that led to it and the cinematic influences that created the style but I really feel like someone could have done a second pass on the actual content of the script. Mm. <laughs> then, like, maybe some of these details don't make so much sense. But I think it's worth mentioning and thinking about briefly, maybe before we wrap things up, what an influence this film, and specifically its soundtrack, has had on uh, the culture that followed it. I mean, in my memory, and this is not a period of pop culture that I am uh, have any expertise on, but I remember living it. And it feels like this film and probably Eternal Sunshine really kicked off a period of like self-conscious hipsterdom. Like this was really the birth of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really curious at like how you guys feel about that aesthetic part of it. You know, like you were saying, Eliza, the French New Wave influences, but now we can even see the movies that were influenced by Garden State 15 years later, right? Mm-hmm. So like, oh, sure. what did you what did you make of this yeah. aesthetic with hindsight? I I saw I I watched King of Staten Island mm-hmm. over the summer. And I think King of Staten Island and other movies like it are the direct descendants of this movie. And I mean, also, one movie you guys covered last year, 500 Days of Summer, also follows a similar kind of guy who's into similar kind of music. And even a movie like... Scott Pilgrim versus the world or whatever. This type of male aesthetic is representative of a guy who is better than your typical dude, but he's still struggling with it. And that's, it's just this, uh, it becomes this arc, this movie, the music informs mm-hmm. the archetype of Zach Graff's character. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned um, King of Staten Island. I think that a lot of the movies more recently that have the same sort of storytelling are maybe have a little bit more self-awareness than this did, or at least attempt to. I think, you know, what what, uh, storytellers are, are learning from movies like Garden State is that you can tell these stories that are sort of based on their own lives and about their own internal struggle, but you need to have, you know, some sort of outside perspective in order to make it more successful. I also, as I was watching this, uh, thought of The Big Sick, 
Mm. Um, which is mm. you know a, another movie that is based on someone's real life experience and about you know really about the way something that happened to a woman affected the man, but the characters beyond the main character just feel much more fleshed out. Um, and even the main character himself dives into who they are a little bit more, and so it doesn't feel so one dimensional or feel like it's all about the main male you know, protagonist, because you just, you do learn more about the, the pasts and the wants and the needs and the desires of the periphery characters as well. Oh boy. Um, here's the new slang. I love our patrons on Patreon. They selected this movie, um, for which we are grateful and also, um, concerned. And, um, <laughs> we're especially thankful as always for our romantic leads, uh, who are Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey. Y'all are the best. You know it. Um, that's it. Uh, you can become one of our Patreons and uh, become a part of our little Killjoys family and go like us on Facebook and Instagram as well to keep up with all the haps. <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> well, um, I think, as, uh, as Janelle said, we almost like this movie, and the more we talk about it, the more we hate it. So before we hate it even more, let's talk about what we can consume instead. Uh, Henry, do you have any antidotes you'd like to suggest for us this week? I would like to recommend uh, Palm Springs, starring Ooh, yes. Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti as uh, an antidote to this movie. Uh, it came out this year. It's available to stream on Hulu. It's so funny. It's really well directed and constructed. It also explores these ideas of depression and monotony and I, but it does it in a way that is more thoughtful. It's a lot funnier and Kristen Milioti has a full character arc. So it's a much fuller experience and I can't recommend it enough. I think it was one of the best movies of 2020. I've got a couple suggestions this week. Uh, the first one, which um, ironically, a friend of the podcast, uh, Kate Kearns, was mentioning to me just the other day, uh, and I was already thinking about as a um, antidote to this movie, is the movie, uh, the movie, is the TV show Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix, because that is Ooh, also about, um, it takes place in a sort of suburban hellscape and has a, you know, deals <laughs> with that kind of, quote unquote normal suburban life but the main family and the uh the main female character played by the amazing drew barrymore has that sort of normal monotonous life broken up when she accidentally becomes a zombie and has to figure out how to live her <laughs> suburban mom life as a zombie and it's very funny and the women are excellent um, it's a lot of fun. It's very quirky, but quirky in a way that is really enjoyable rather than frustrating or annoying. And I also was thinking about movies that had the same kind of early 2000s indie vibe and, you know, maybe discussed family dynamics and death. And I landed on Little Miss Sunshine, which is mm. just such a funny movie. I mean, I I howl <laughs> every time I watch it. It's so funny, but it also has these really great serious moments of of some surprising depth that i think the movie does earn so is a it handles it better yeah so my antidote is you know i was trying to think about some early 2000s hipster bullshit and since this film's soundtrack is really its calling card i wanted to go with something with music so 
Um, I'm going to recommend uh, not an album, not a song, not an artist, but rather two characters from an artist's discography. Um, if you're familiar with the Mountain Goats, the cult band, um, you may be familiar with two characters from this discography called uh, the Alpha Couple. Uh, they are a couple that fights and has a terrible time and drinks far too much, but through the discography of the band, you kind of follow the arc of their relationship uh, in a way that we don't get in Garden State at all because we just see the beginning of the relationship. Um, it has all kinds of nuance and complexity. The lead singer, John Darniel, uh, who is also the chief lyricist, uh, just has an incredible gift for capturing complex um, relationships and emotions. Um, so I'll specifically recommend their album Tallahassee, the 2002 album Tallahassee, which it's completely dedicated to the Alpha Couple and is their canonical uh, final act. Uh, it's emotional, it's powerful, um, game shows touch our lives, no children, uh, a lot of Mountain Goats classics on there. So check out Tallahassee 2002. Everyone out there, I hope that you are home, you are safe, you are healthy. We'll talk to you next week. And Henry, thank you so much for coming and hanging with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. Thank you for listening to the Romcom Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog. And the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See you next time. Instead of breaking up, the thoughts of kissing and making up.